We're going to wrap up chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Uh, We've seen Pentecost happen. We've seen the context of Pentecost. Uh, We have heard Peter's powerful sermon, or Luke's summary of Peter's powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. Uh, We're going to wrap up with chapter 2, and we'll see the result of... um, Peter's powerful sermon, and then we'll see one of one of Luke's, and he does this a few times throughout the book of Acts, we'll see one of Luke's summary statements. Every so often, he just pauses to give you a summary of what's, what's going on, which most of us appreciate that. So, the sermon has happened. You, you heard that last week. The sermon finished with verse 36 of chapter 2 with that declaration about Jesus Christ being both uh, Lord and Christ. So in verse 37 of chapter 2, through the end of the text, uh, we we wrap up. We see the results and we see a summary statement. Uh, Again, this particularly in this summary statement that we'll be looking at, this is a perfect place to ask whether or not we look like our picture. Because uh, what, what Luke's doing when he gives you these summary statements, uh, he's, he's painting you a short s- summary statement as to what the early Christian community looked like. So uh, again, do we look like our picture? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, and of course the this is Peter's sermon he just finished. Now when they heard this, and this is all the Jewish community gathered around them here in Jerusalem, Uh, for the festival of uh, uh, Shavuot, the festival of Pentecost in the Jewish tradition. They're all there in Jerusalem, big crowds, massive crowds. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Uh, They were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. This is what we used to talk about, and I don't know why we don't talk about it much now. This is what we used to talk about being um, uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's what we talk about uh, in Christian tradition uh, as to how the Holy Spirit can convict us of our sin. I guess we don't talk about conviction much because we don't talk about sin much. If you're in a culture where everybody just wants to be affirmed, yeah, there's not much room left for talking about sin. Um, And we don't talk about guilt either. I think, thanks to Mr. Sigmund Freud, uh, most contemporaries think guilt is a bad thing. Um, if you beat a child, I hope you feel real guilty about that. Guilt is not necessarily a bad thing. Your life shouldn't be paralyzed by guilt, uh, but you shouldn't um, avoid guilt either. Our culture likes to avoid guilt about as much as they like to avoid sin. So that's why our culture doesn't know much about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches, and you see the, the result is the conviction of the crowd by the Holy Spirit, at least some of the people there in the crowd. They feel guilty. Um, I, I've always been grateful that as a Christian, I have something to do with my guilt. I have someone to whom I can go to with my guilt. I have a way of getting rid of my guilt. Um, but don't just pretend there is no such thing or it, it's, it's a um, neurotic behavior to feel guilty. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us feel guilty. Uh, when we need to feel guilty. And then that sends us fleeing to Christ uh, to make a a change in our life. So Peter preaches, and this crowd of Jews, they feel the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they evidently all standing there, brothers, these are Jews talking to Jews, brothers, what shall we do? You know, the way you should do Christianity and the way you should listen to a sermon, the way you should preach a sermon, should be uh, first question, what should we believe? Second question, what should we do in light of what we believe? So uh, Peter's been talking to them about what they should believe, about what's happening at Pentecost, fulfillment of the book of Joel, Holy Spirit falling, Um, on Christ followers, uh, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's talked to them about what they should believe concerning Jesus. 
And so they appropriately now say, because of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, uh, and Peter said to them, repent. Another key Christian concept, repent. Uh, that's what you do when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and your guilt. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of your false thinking and your um, false ways of living. Um, you're convicted. What should we do? Peter said, repent. The word repent uh, here in the Greek, and it goes back to the Hebrew concept, means um, a change of mind. But more than that, it means a change of direction. Repentance is not just. I grew up in a tradition where it almost felt like this is what we believed. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for your sin. Uh, that's remorse. Again, not a bad thing. That's part of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you can sin um, with impunity, if you can sin without feeling guilty, that is a really serious spiritual condition. Um, you, hopefully, when we stray away from the will of God, there's there's that work of the Holy Spirit in our life that says we need we need to change our thinking, change our doing. So repentance means you change because of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So feeling sad may be part of it. Feeling remorseful may be part of it. That, you know, just feeling bad doesn't change anything. Repentance means change your mind and change your direction. Uh, the, the Greek word is metanoia. It means to turn around, literally. So, uh, again, repentance is a... Um, Big part of the Christian life, John Wesley, somebody of whom I'm fond, used to preach a lot about repentance. Don't know why Methodists don't talk about it much anymore, or Christians in general don't talk about it much anymore. The Holy Spirit convicts. What do we do? We repent. Uh, we, are, we, we are convicted of our sins, so then we repent, which means we turn from um, our sinful ways, our sinful thinking, and we turn toward God. Repentance is important. Repent and be baptized. Again, this is the beginning of the Christian community. Repent and be baptized. Uh, the word baptized, and I'll just throw this out and talk more about it later. Uh, I'm well aware of all the, con all the conversation over the last couple thousand years among Christians about baptism. And we're going to see the practice of baptism, ritual of baptism, quite a bit in the book of Acts. Uh, so we'll have opportunities to see baptism happening. We'll have opportunities to see it happening in different ways in different places. But the word baptized means to be immersed at this point. It means to be immersed because it comes from the Jewish tradition of baptism. Uh, we Christians didn't invent it. John the Baptist didn't invent it. John the Baptist was participating in a Jewish tradition when he was calling the people to come out to the Jordan River and, be, to, and repent and be baptized. Um, you need to understand the um, Jewish tradition because it's going to come into play too at the end of this text. So if you're talking to a Jewish context about baptism, they know what you're talking about. Uh, Jews have um, two forms of baptism. Uh, well, there's well, there's two forms of baptism, and then there's other ritual washings that you may be aware of with baptism. Um, they have ritual washings, and sometimes those ritual washings, ritual purifications or immersion, um, uh, they, the, a mikvah, which is the singular, mikvah oat is the plural, are baptismal pools, and we have them all over the, all over Israel. Archaeological evidence of them all over Israel. Uh, you walked down in them, you squatted down, got your head under the water, uh, you were ritually washed, and you walked back up. Uh, they were all over Jerusalem, by the way, and again, that becomes important in a moment. They were all over Jerusalem, so there were daily ritual purifications. If you go to Israel or, I guess, New York City, and you're in a kosher restaurant where Jews frequent, you will see that at the door uh, there's a little... Um, Metal has to be metal. It can't be uh, pottery because that would absorb impurities. There's a little metal pot of water, and they will wash their hands when they come in. Uh, that, they're not doing it at that point just for hygienic purposes. They're doing it as part of the ritual washing. So Jews have a history, a rich history of ritual washings. Now, what's being referenced here 
because it's what, it's what John the Baptist did. This is proselyte baptism. Proselyte baptism in the Jewish faith is what was done to a non-Jew as part of the process of becoming a Jew. And it really did symbolize a dying to an old life and a rising to a new life. We pick up on that in the New Testament, too. Uh, so baptism was a well-known concept in Judaism. So that Jewish crowd would have been shocked because it would have been clear that Peter was not saying to them to just do another one of your ritual washings that like you do all day long. He is saying to them, proselyte baptism. And they probably are thinking, just like the crowd that went out to the Jordan River with John the Baptist, they're probably thinking, I'm already in the faith. I'm already one of the chosen. I'm already among the community. You know, why do I need proselyte baptism? Well, John the Baptist was saying, you, you need to start all over again. You've messed it up so much. Go back to the Jordan River, re-enter the land, start all over again. Uh, so proselyte baptism is, is a new beginning. So here... Um, Peter is calling this Jewish community to proselyte baptism. They, they, they're starting something rather new um, in a continuation of their Judaism, but rather new. So repent, be baptized. That's going to take a lot of water. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name, the authority, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Uh, for, the word for there is probably better translated because... Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. As a result of you experiencing the forgiveness of your sins through the work of Jesus Christ, the logical thing to do is repent and be baptized, kind of find that new life. Uh, and you will receive, here's the book of Acts emphasis, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. Um, this is the gift that comes to everyone when they embrace Christ or when they allow Christ to embrace them. Uh, when, you, when you come to Christ, Paul makes this very clear in several places, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not a reward that certain Christians get at certain points along the way. Uh, that might be a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. That might be a new experience of the Holy Spirit. But you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you come to Christ because it's that baptism of the Holy Spirit that, that puts you in the body of Christ. It's that baptism that, that engrafts you into the body. That's why conviction of sin, repentance, baptism, coming to Christ, um, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, that's why I like to ask Christians, you have the Holy Spirit, does the Holy Spirit have you? Um, yeah, you need to work on that relationship to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has taken up residency in your life. But that's why the New Testament will talk about things such as grieving the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, you have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit have you? Are you still, Or are you still trying just to be captain of your own destiny? Are you still trying to be Christian and in rebellion also? against the will of God? Are you letting the, the Spirit lead? Is that what you want in life? Anyway, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. It comes as part of the package. Verse 39. Here, here's where Peter's going to talk about you folks, us folks. Verse 39. For the promise is for you, the crowd he's talking to, for your children and for all who are far off. That's the Gentile world. That's the rest of us. Again, what you're seeing in the book of Acts, starting in Jerusalem, they're going to Judea, then they're going to Samaria, and then they're going to the ends of the earth. Uh, this is not just for some Jews. It's not just for a select group of people at the beginning, uh, at the, at, at, toward the beginning of the first century, uh, middle of the first century. Uh, this is for even those of us who are far off, those of us that are Gentiles on the other side of the globe. So I'm glad Peter makes that clear. This is not for a select group at a select time. For this promise, and by the way, the promise is what Luke tells you about earlier at the end of the gospel, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the promise of the Father. Go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Um, 
if you come to Christ, it's because you woke up and realized that Christ was coming after you. Salvation is always the sovereign work of God. Uh, salvation begins with God. Salvation is comes to us on the initiative of God. It's not because we're such brilliant people we get our act together. Um, God draws us. And then hopefully at some point we let ourselves be drawn. And that's why salvation is uh, the act of God in our lives. It's more about God than us. We just, we just relinquish. We, we, we lay down our arms of rebellion and we allow ourselves to be captured by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says something like, uh, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He's calling. He's calling. You know, but some people um, have a hard time listening. But he's calling. And then when you, when you, come, when you come to Christ, you, you answer yes to that call. But he, he's doing the work first. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Christ is coming after us before we even have any desire or even know Christ exists. Christ is coming after us. He's calling. Verse 40. And with many other words. I'm so grateful that's there. Uh, remember I told you these sermons, these speeches we see in the book of Acts are Luke's summary of first century preaching. Don't expect my sermons to be this length. Because um, they're quick, they're short, usually less than a chapter in the New Testament. But it's, it's Luke summarizing, and he, he tells you that. With many other words, Peter bore witness, and he continued to exhort them. So he said a whole lot more than this. That's true, we think, for all the sermons you see in the book of Acts. Peter summarizes it for you, and he uh, gives you the important stuff. But it's not all they say. So uh, he, he, he continued to preach, he bore witness, he continued to exhort or encourage them, saying, by, by the way, uh, those of us that know something about the Methodist tradition, uh, years and years and years ago, our lay preachers were called exhorters. That's what we called them. Uh, they, 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 they were not really even told to go preach doctrine, just don't go contrary to doctrine, but they were told to go and exhort, go and encourage people to live the Christian life. Anyway, so here's Peter exhorting, encouraging them. And notice what he's saying. He's, he's quoting the Old Testament. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Or you can, some translations say, save yourself from this perverse generation. He said that in the first century. He would still say that today. You know, for the, for the world around us that only wants to be affirmed, if you just only want to be affirmed in who you are and your choices, let Peter tell you you're participating in this crooked, perverse generation. That's who we are by nature. That's who the world is without Christ. That's who the world is outside of Christ. That's the condition of the world before repentance happens. That's core Christian theology. So, um, yeah, he... he I'm sure somebody would say to Peter today, well, that's not very positive. You don't say to us, save ourselves from this crooked, perverse generation. Our ancestors missed that course on the power of positive thinking. They didn't have that. Um, yeah, they, they, they were trying to throw a lifeline to drowning people. And that's, that's, that's why, by the way, one of the um, earliest symbols of the church is the ark. If you walk, and you see this all over the place, if you walk in our sanctuary, look up, and I hope you know what you're looking at, is the upturned ark, the upturned boat, the upturned ship. You're looking at the rafters of a ship. We started doing that uh, 300 years ago in architecture. Uh, when I went to seminary, when I walked through the door of my seminary every morning, uh, there was a symbol of an ark over the door. It's one of the oldest symbols for the church because it's, it's, it's the gospel of Christ being shared by the church. This is the lifeline we throw to people and pull them in and get them out of this world safely. So, uh, yeah, crooked, perverse generation. Um, yeah. He, he didn't read the book either on how to win friends and influence people. 
he was telling them the truth. Verse 41. By the way, the most loving thing you can do to people is tell them the truth. Sometimes it's just affirm people and who they are and what they want to do. It's not telling them the truth. Um, if you walk by a burning house, you need to save those people from that burning house. Don't tell them just, you know, don't worry, be happy. If you're going to love them, save them from that burning house. Uh, the Christian faith has always known that, but people don't want to be. And you're going, you're going you see the word save there? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Uh, salvation means to be salvaged, means to be saved. It's a biblical term. John Wesley loved it. All Christian preaching up to recent days loved it. Because uh, you, you, we're being saved from this present age. We're being saved from this present generation. We're being saved from, from this world around us by the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, until you... That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It has to start with you realizing you need to be saved. If you just want to be affirmed, well, you probably don't know you need to be saved. If you just want to be um, affirmed and celebrated and, and held in high esteem and to grow in, 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 in esteem, you probably don't know you need to be saved. But the gospel is very clear. I'm glad we have this book. I just wish people would read it a little more. Um, that's, that's what salvation means. It means to be salvaged, delivered, saved. Um, so save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now look at this, verse 41. So those who received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Um, by the way, that happens to be the same number of people that um, died as a result of worshiping the golden calf uh, there at the foot of Mount Sinai when they were judged for their idolatry. 3,000. Here's 3,000 are saved. Um, 3,000 were baptized. Now, um, particularly about 150 years ago, there was the beginning of, when we had the beginning of very, very, very skeptical biblical scholarship, there were people sitting in Germany. Some of you heard me say this before. That's, that's where a lot of the biblical scholarship that changed a lot of things came from in the latter part of the 1800s, the Tübingen School of Biblical Studies. There were Germans sitting in uh, universities in Germany uh, pontificating about the Bible, and they read stuff like this, where 3,000 people were baptized, and they said, oh, there's not that much water in Jerusalem. This is a figment of Luke's imagination. They never, they didn't even know what Jerusalem looked like. They were in Germany. All they, they knew is what Europe looked like. Um, again, that's why I said to a few moments ago, we, you, you can find the ruins of ancient mikvahot all over Germany, Germany, all over Israel today, all over ancient Jerusalem. Uh, particularly, when was one of those places ritual washings were important as you were going to the temple? So there are ruins of mikvahot all over the temple area. Uh, the high priest, the, the area where the high priest lived in great luxury, uh, the high priest lived in great uh, luxury, the Sadducees, a lot of them had private mikvah oaks, baptismal pools. Um, you, you can see them. They're all over Israel. Now, the, the steps even going down into the mikvah oak, there are divided steps because you went down dirty, you came up clean, you want the dirty people going down one side and the clean people coming up the other side. There are mikvahot all over Israel. Um, and by the way, some of you have been there too. Not far from the temple is the Pool of Bethesda. And not far from the temple is the Pool of Siloam. It would not have been difficult to have had 3,000 people baptized by immersion on the day of Pentecost. You know, um, sometimes people don't know what they don't know. Those German scholars who had never been to, uh, to the Holy Land, never been to the Middle East, they assumed, yeah, there's no river. There's no river in Jerusalem. But they created those mikvot that captured rainwater. That's how they had all those baptismal pools. That's how they had the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Siloam. So it, it is not a stretch of the imagination. Um, there was a recent, I say recent, time flies by, back in the 70s, I think it was, in Africa, where there's a massive revival going on, 
one bishop and one archbishop and 21 uh, bishops over the course of one day baptized 70,000 new Christians. It can happen. It can happen. It could happen in Jerusalem in the first century. So uh, they received the word, they were baptized, and they were added um, 3,000 souls that day to the church. Uh, some of you know I used to serve as a district superintendent. I had 167 churches that, this kind of borders on lunacy, by the way. I had 167 churches that I was trying to give some leadership to. And, you know, one of the things, I learned so much doing that. That was a great experience. One of the things I learned was I got so tired of preachers telling me, making excuses, giving me great, great reasons why their churches were declining so rapidly. And they even, they even, they even elevated it to a, a theological art form. They acted like talking about numbers was not spiritual. And I would always say, let's talk about Luke a little while. This is not going to be the last time Luke's going to give you numbers coming to the church. You know, we, in, in my tradition, but this is probably true of most Christians in America today, certainly among mainline churches, uh, we, we started about 20 years, years ago calling it the E-word because you don't want to talk about it. You know, the E-word, evangelism. Yeah, try to get somebody to serve on the evangelism committee. We, we, here we finally named it evangelism and hospitality, and we still have to beg because the E word is, is, is frightening to people. You know, the, the early church, evangelism was not one of their programs, one of their committees. For the early Christian community and the Christian community around the world when it's vibrant, evangelism is a way of life. That's the way we should be living. We should live invitationally drawing people to Christ. Um, yeah, I got so tired of hearing these Methodist preachers explain to me why they hadn't had a baptism or profession of faith in 30 years. Remember that? You probably don't know. There was a, uh, Mr. Tuttle, who years and years and years ago served at First Methodist here, wrote a book called There's Algae in the Baptismal Font. Yeah, I, I've heard it. I was tired of hearing Methodist preachers tell me, you know, why, why, why they, their churches never grew, you know, and they just and again they almost made it. They thought I was being unspiritual when I'd ask about growth, when I'd ask about numbers. I know some areas grow easier than others. Some churches are in locations. I mean, like right now in Africa, you can't help but grow. In Korea, you can't help but grow. In China, you cannot help but grow. In Cuba, you cannot help but grow. There's places where growth, you can't stop it. There are other places you got to work a little hard on for growth to happen. There's still people out there that need to know about Christ. And um, 3,000 were added to the church that day. So now we get to the summary statement. Uh, this Luke does this. You're going to see it several times in the book of Acts. He, he offers you these summary statements to sort of show you what, what the church looked like, this church that's forming. By the way, the word church, you know this. If, you, if you've been in the faith a while, you went to Sunday school and you were taught the church is not the building, it's the people. The word church means is, is Greek, ekklesia. It, it literally means the called out ones. So the church is the people. We know that. So when I, when I talk about 3,000 people being added to the church, they were not put on the rolls of some organization somewhere. Uh, they became part of, part of the body. So now Luke is going to paint you a summary picture of what the early Christian community looked like. And this is amazing. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves, not, not occasionally gave attention to. They devoted themselves to four things. Notice these four things. Every congregation in Christendom needs to evaluate themselves against these four things. They devoted themselves to, number one, the, the, and, the and the articles are here. The, the these are here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, the apostles are still with them. you got 20 years till you have the New Testament start, starting to be produced. So what they had was these apostles, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So teaching was part of the early church. The apostles were those eyewitnesses to Christ who spent time with Christ. They devoted themselves to learning. 
That's a stretch for some people. They devoted themselves, not to you here this morning, but for some people it's a stretch. They devoted themselves to learning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, not other stuff, not National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, The New Yorker. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, the, the fellowship. The word there is koinonia. We know what that means in the New Testament Greek. is a deep, deep sharing of life. You know, you can't just throw up a table and put some fried chicken on it and say fellowship is happening. That's not biblical fellowship. It might lead you to biblical fellowship, not opposed to that, but that's not, you can call it fellowship dinner, and it may or may not be. Um, Koinonia in the New Testament sense, is a, and you're going to see it here, a deep, deep sharing of life. Uh, John Wesley, again, something I'm sort of fond of, great preacher, he said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Yeah, when you receive Christ, you're going to have to receive these people that Christ brings with them. Fellowship, a part of the body, part of the community, a deep sharing. It literally means a deep partnership in life. Paul talks about things like bear, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. It's a deep, deep sharing. You're going to see it, you're going to see it even displayed here a little further. So first thing, apostles teaching. Second thing, serious, serious koinonia fellowship. Third thing, in the article is here to the the breaking of the bread now i think a little bit later in this summary statement he's going to talk about them having meals together so because he says it later a little bit in this passage he's going to talk about having meals together uh you know sometimes baptist methods think they invented eating together it goes back to the beginning they were sharing meals together uh, but he's going to actually talk about sharing meals together in homes a little later in this text. So here you notice it is the breaking of the bread. Uh, almost universally, um, New Testament scholars, the breaking of the bread is communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper. So they devoted themselves, not just once a quarter and you go home when you notice it's going to happen in church. But they devoted themselves to partaking the Lord's Supper. They remember Jesus saying, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Anyways, that's the breaking of the bread that's spoken about here. Uh, the um, the, new, the um, new Living Translation, which I'm fond of, um, great scholars did it. They actually say sharing of meals including the Lord's Supper. And it could mean all of the above. Because they did share meals together and they had the Lord's Supper. But most of us think because he's going to get around just a little bit later here to talking about sharing meals, just eating together potlucks or whatever, this is probably the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, um, the communion. So apostles teaching, koinonia, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Not just prayer in general. The article's there. Again, you've heard me say several times when I taught New Testament University, I had to teach them how to read. When a the is there, the the is there for a reason. There's no extraneous words in the Bible. The prayers. So what are we talking about with the prayers? Well, we know from the New Testament they devoted themselves to praying in lots of different ways. They devoted themselves to a life of prayer. They devoted themselves to growing as prayerful people. But let me make sure you understand what the prayers are. Look ahead just a little bit to where we'll be next week. Look at the first verse of the next chapter. Chapter 3 of Acts, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The prayers here are the set times of Jewish prayer. They would go to the temple. And we, the Jews still do that. Christians still do that. That's why if you have a book of common prayer, there's a morning prayer service for every morning. There's a midday prayer service. There is a mid-afternoon prayer service. There is vespers for the evening. And there is compline for when you go to bed. Um, in Christian tradition, we've even punctuated our day with times of prayer, set times of prayer. 
Um, now, I know in some Christian traditions, there seems to be this implication that if it's not spontaneous, it's not real. Well, that's not New Testament. They did spontaneous praying. They did extemporaneous praying. But they also devoted themselves to the times of prayer that they learned from the Old Testament. They learned from the book of Psalms. So, you know, and that's just common sense. If you don't schedule it, whatever it is in your life, if you don't schedule it, set time set time aside, schedule it. I'll even encourage you, set a place aside for it to happen. If you don't do that, it probably won't happen. If you just wait for the mood to hit you, that's an American thing. You just wait for the mood to hit you, that mood may never hit you. Um, so so the, the, we know this, the important things in life, we don't just leave to spontaneity. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that there is something called Valentine's Day. That reminds me to be romantic to my wife. <laughs> Whether I feel like it that day or not, you know, I just know I got to do it. You know, we Americans idolize our emotions. That's one of the worst forms of idolatry in America. We idolize our emotions. We do stuff when we feel like it. We don't do stuff when we don't feel like it. I've always said one of the most important times to pray is when you don't feel like it. You know, and again, some of you know my background. I hung out at a monastery. That's where I go back occasionally. Rob's been with me there. I still go back about once a month to film, to be with my monastic brothers uh, in the Cistercian tradition. They pray seven times a day because the book of Psalms talks about seven times a day. Oh, Lord, do I praise thee. Now, Cistercians, they're the rigorist. Yeah, you go retreat at a Cistercian monastery, which I've done. That for, in order to get seven prayer times in in a day, they usually start at 3.15 or 3.30 a.m., a.m., um, I was sort of educated and trained by Benedictine monks. I'm glad they're more moderate. They would sometimes start with 5.30, 7 a.m. But, you know, what I learned after spending time in a place like that, you know, for the first two or three days when the bell of the church started ringing at 5.30, I would bound out of bed and I would go pray. By about the fourth day, the bell started ringing. I'd put the pillow over my head. <laughs> You know, John Wesley got up every morning and started praying at 4 a.m. Whatever he felt. He did that till he died. Till right before he died. So, yeah, it's not a Bible thing to say, I pray when I feel like it. When the Spirit hits me. Please schedule it. You know, we schedule the important things in life. You'd be surprised what I write on my schedule. Uh, we, you know, it's like... Be romantic, it's Valentine's Day. You'd be surprised what I write on my schedule because if you don't, if you don't schedule it, if you leave it to spontaneity, you know I'm not opposed to spontaneity. My family thinks I am, but I'm not opposed to spontaneity. I just like to organize my life, and I particularly like to organize to make sure I get around to doing those important things. And prayer is one of them. They devoted themselves to the prayer. And you see them here, as long as they were in Jerusalem, going to the temple. They had prayer time, the Jewish tradition. You had prayer time at 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., evening prayer. Um, if you ever fly to Israel on El Al, which is the Israeli airline, it's kosher. Um, they don't fly on the Sabbath. But if you ever fly there, you'll notice before you get on the plane, when the sun goes down there in Newark, the Jews gather and pray. Now, what's really a bummer, for us Gentiles, you're flying that way, whatever that is, eastward, I guess. So, um, you know, you're gaining time. So I remember the first time I flew El Al, my clock, my body clock said 2.30 a.m. But guess what was happening? Sun was coming up. I heard this Hebrew word. I was, I'd worked all night to go to sleep. I finally went to sleep. All of a sudden I hear this Hebrew word that kind of startled me awake. And here these Jews, Jewish men, it was men, went to different ends of the plane and had their morning prayer as soon as the sun came up. I'm like, I don't feel like it. And my clock says it's 2.30. I'm still on American time. I wasn't even close to Israeli time at that point. They're, they're seven hours ahead of us at least. Anyway, schedule the important things in your life. And that really needs to be prayer too. Schedule it. And for me, I need to schedule it. And I need to 
space for that to happen. You know, nothing sacred about that space, just like our sanctuary upstairs. But sometimes we need a space. We, we need to make sure we do the important things. So you see the four things here that were part of the early church. They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking bread, and the prayers. That's, that's sort of the summary statement here in the summary statement. So look at the rest. Um, and all, all great reverence, respect, mysterious reverence. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The church should be the realm of supernatural activity. That's why we pray. Hopefully we're involved in supernatural activity. When we experience the presence of Christ in Holy Communion, we are participating in supernatural activity. When we hear the voice of God through Scripture, we're participating in supernatural activity. I hope you understand that. Um, it should go on and on. So um, Luke Timothy Johnson, who used to be professor of New Testament at uh, Emory, said it was almost like there was a force field around the early church. Read the book of Acts. So th- there were signs and wonders, great awe, just sort of engulfing the early Christian community. They, they knew they were participating in spiritual reality. Verse, um, verse 44, now this word is really interesting for Americans, for moderns. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. Well, that makes us nervous. I'm so glad we got the rest of the book. If you have a study Bible, I almost guarantee if, if, if they have extensive notes, I almost guarantee there's going to be a study note that says this is not modern communism. Because it has been used to, to kind of support socialism. But it's not. We know that. One, we, we're going to keep reading this book. We're going to get to chapter 5 eventually. But otherwise, we also know, notice this is voluntary sharing. Notice they're also sharing their possessions. The early Christian community believed in private property. Believed in voluntary sharing. It was not dictated, mandated sharing. So, yeah, some of us in the modern era, post-fascism, post-communism, we feel the need to say, well, this is not communism, because it has been used to say we should be. In the, early, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a pretty vibrant movement, particularly in England, um, touched this land a little bit, called Christian socialism. Um, I've got loved ones that are... That, that are registered as socialist, and we love each other desperately. You know, I, I hope you understand, but what, because of what your children do, that doesn't mean you change your theology or your convictions. I have no, I've never had an urge to run out and register as a socialist. I love some socialists, some topics we don't discuss, and they know not to use the Bible to try to, you know, support their socialism with me. But... Yeah, you know, our kid, we don't, we don't, our theology is not based on what our children do or what our loved ones do or because I finally, I met a socialist. They're good people. Well, yeah, my loved ones I know that are socialists are good people, great people. We're deeply, deeply in love with each other. But um, I don't know why we, we Americans have a hard time with that, too. You know, our kids will do something, someone we love will do something, and we'll change our whole theology and conviction, and the Bible we'll throw away. We just need to love people who have a different view. If, if by the way, if my, if some of these people that I love deeply and desperately who are registered socialists, if I come home tonight or I go meet, visit them tonight and, and, and I declare I'm a socialist, they'll probably think I've had a stroke. They don't expect me to embrace that. There's several things they don't expect me to embrace. They know I will love them. I'll show them unconditional kindness. I will bleed for them. I will suffer for them. I'll make sure they never need for anything. But, yeah, they they don't expect me to embrace some of their convictions, some of their lifestyle. Yeah, anyway, you probably didn't know the Bible doesn't support socialism. Uh, In the Ten Commandments, by the way, in case this is a discussion you have with somebody, in the Ten Commandments, when it says don't covet your neighbor's property, 
Guess what else is being blessed right there? Your neighbor can have property. In the Jewish Christian tradition, we believe in the ownership of private property. Now, we also believe, as you're going to see in this text here, in generous, giving, charitable hearts. Not this forced on us, but but we believe in that. So you see great, great, great generosity here, but yeah, don't let anybody tell you. They were communist in the early church. It's going to become real obvious when you get chapter 5, they were not communists in the early church. Anyway, so they're sharing belongings. They're taking care of each other. It's more koinonia, the deep, deep sense of sharing, um, sharing of life. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending where together? The temple. They didn't stop being Jewish when they became Christian. You know, they didn't leave one religion for another. Christianity is a way of being Jewish, like Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes. By the way, the Essenes down at Qumran were communistic. There was a branch of Judaism that these people would have known that was communistic. They lived in the commune down at the Dead Sea. Some of you have been there with me. They, that, so they, they knew of that in the ancient world. Um, there's different ways of being Jewish. Uh, the, the Nazarenes or the Christians were another way of being Jewish. But they, they didn't stop being Jewish. They're still attending the temple. At the end of the book of Acts, you're going to watch Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to watch Paul go back to Jerusalem. Guess what he does? He'll go through rites of purification before he goes to the temple. Now, he'll fight you tooth and nail if you try to tell a Gentile to do that. If you try to tell a Gentile they have to do that to embrace Christ. But the Jews that came to Christ didn't give up their Judaism. They added Christ to their Judaism. Now, what Paul argues is that for the Gentiles, you don't have to take Judaism and then Jesus. You can just come to Christ. But these Jews did not stop being Jewish. So day by day, attending the day by day, not just on the Sabbath, day by day, because they're going to the prayer times, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Here's your potlucks. So we've been doing this since day one. We know that there's something sacramental and spiritual about sharing meals together. By the way, when I took Judaism from a rabbi, uh, at a Catholic college a long, long time ago, I learned a lot from Rabbi Richard Rockland. One of the things I learned from him, I remember him saying, the Jewish faith has no room for McDonald's. Because for them, eating a meal, eating a meal together is a sacred experience. Not fast food. Eating a meal, eating a meal together is a sacred experience. And we know that, and that's why in the Christian community, at the center of our worship life is eating a meal together, Holy Communion. Yeah, there's something sacred about sharing a meal. That's a Bible thing. Yeah, Richard Rockland um, said, that, and funny thing was he always said there's no room for, for McDonald's in the Jewish faith. He had to drive from Charlotte to Belmont to teach us. He was in a wreck one morning as he was pulling into McDonald's getting his coffee. We all have our standards. We never meet our standards. But I knew what we, 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 know, we knew what he was saying. I had a pastoral care professor at Duke who, when couples would come to him in, 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 in distress in their marriage, he would say to them, um, when did you stop eating meals to get together? And, what he, and the way he defined that, by the way, <clears throat> was eating a meal with just each other, not in front of the television, not with three other things distracting you, but where you have to eat a meal with each other and either talk or eat the meal in silence. He would say, when did you quit eating your meals together without distractions? And the people were like, you must be a psychic. How do you know we're not eating? Because that's usually something that goes. Sharing a meal together should be kind of a rather intimate experience. We know that from our Jewish background. Uh, so that's why here they're, they're breaking bread in their homes. They worshipped in two places in the early Christian community, the temple and in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Favor with, there's joy. Favor with all the people. You know, I... I 
All of us have felt the need from time to time to say to people, when you come to Christ, please don't turn into a jerk. And sometimes I, there are people around who I think part of being Christian means, they think, means being a jerk to everybody they meet. Notice the early Christian community. They had favor with all the all the non-Christians. We should have the respect. We should always take the high road. We should live in such a way they may not understand us. They may not, they may not appreciate what we stand for, but they respect us because we always, always take the high road. So they have favor with all the people. And the Lord, now these people eventually try to kill them, but they still respected the people they were trying to kill because these were good, they knew these were good people. Having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number, notice, day by day. Again, numbers are not sub-spiritual. Evangelism is important. A living organism grows. You know that, right? I don't care if it's a... In any living organism grows. If a living organism's not growing, that means this ease is happening. A living congregation should be growing. I had a lot of pre- preachers get angry with me when I would say that to them. They'll say, "Well, but you don't know my community. You don't know my people. You don't know a living." And, that, and all that was probably true that they told me. But I would just say a a living, vibrant, vital, healthy organism grows. So they're, and they're not just adding to their number on Sundays. On Saturday. They're still worshiping on Saturdays and Sundays here. Uh, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being, and there's that Bible word, saved. People need to understand they need to be saved from something, you know, before they, um, before they come to Christ. So important stuff here, important stuff here. This, this is a summary passage. So we, we're going to get into some more specific, interesting things. Yeah, next week we'll see them go into the temple for, for prayer time. And we'll see what happens when they go to the temple for prayer time. But again, do we look like our picture? I know there's lots of different congregations represented in this room. Don't become a jerk to your pastor because of me. But do we look like our picture? Do we look like our picture? Let's pray together.